good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. So, any questions? We were talking about the the five hindrances yesterday. And we talked about the first time, huh? So maybe we'll continue on. The, the next one that I'd like to talk about is called the hindrance of skeptical doubt. And uh, doubt is an interesting thing. Now, uh, there's a, a positive aspect uh, to doubt. There's a healthy uh, doubt that takes the form of reserving judgment rather than just blindly accepting what you're told, uh, followed by uh, determining for yourself, satisfying yourself, whether or not uh, you agree with something or something is true. That That's a very healthy kind of doubt. But... Uh, the kind of doubt that uh, functions as a hindrance, that's when doubt actually stands in the way of our uh, uh, giving, uh, making the effort to determine for ourselves whether something is valid or not. That's where it becomes a problem. So uh, if you... Uh, and, and you know how that works. When you when doubt becomes strong, it can it can prevent you from doing what you need to do. And what are the kinds of doubt that people have associated with meditation? Well, um, very commonly, uh, when people begin a practice and they discover um, how how difficult it is to focus your attention on a single thing without interruption, that uh, uh, they, they think that, that they begin to have doubts in themselves. Either there's something wrong with me, I'm not suited to this, everybody else can do this, I'll never be able to do this, my mind is too, uh, is too busy, too active, too agitated. Um, or they... Uh, they see it as something that is uh, beyond the, the, uh, the capacity of their uh, uh, ability to, to master their discipline, so forth. And that kind of doubt arises. I, I, I think that it's very common. A lot of people begin to meditate the first time they meditate. They sit down and uh, it may seem great because it's new. Uh, there's a novelty to it. It's... Uh, it's exciting, it sounds wonderful, I've got some friends that meditate, you know, they've uh, listened to a, 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 an inspiring uh, discussion or read an inspiring book and they sit down to meditate and uh, their first time is pretty good. But then as they continue to do it, um, the mind, the, the novelty wears off and the mind goes back to its normal way of, of being busy and agitated, and then they start to experience doubt. So they doubt themselves, I can't do this, or I'm not suited to this. Or sometimes they doubt, well, this is not the right method for me, you know, I should go to the meditation center down the street that teaches a different way, and, uh, and no, that doesn't work either. Well, maybe maybe the, I'll try the one in San Diego, maybe that's the one that'll work. You know? <laughs> and, and there is a lot of that. I'm sure you've probably seen that. You know, know some people who have gone through. You know, they've gone from Zen to uh, Vajrayana to all kinds of things, and trying to find the right meditation method that suits them. And in every case, what happens is uh, is, is doubt stands in the way of them just sticking with one thing long enough to really discover the answer whether this is going to work for them or not. Then, of course, there can be doubt about the, the teacher. This is not the right teacher for me. Uh, I just don't click with this teacher, I, you know, and so on and so forth. 
Sometimes that's true. You can find a better teacher. But the point is that uh, doubt can prevent you from really finding out whether this is a suitable method or suitable teacher for you. Doubt reappears uh, at many stages in the practice. It's not just something that shows up when you first begin to meditate. Because as you go along, uh, you'll reach certain plateaus and uh, you won't seem to be progressing. And at that point, doubt will show up again. Um, Or you will have uh, a a great longing for certain kinds of meditative experiences that you've heard and read about, and because you haven't had those experiences, then doubt shows up. Another form that doubt takes is doubt about about the Dharma. Doubt about uh, basically whether there's any point in doing this at all. It does take a lot of time. It does take a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of effort. And so it's not surprising that uh, when, you, when you have invested a lot of time and effort in a particular activity, and uh, you can foresee investing a whole lot more time and effort in it, and you perceive there to be some kind of imbalance between the effort you're investing and the results that you have enjoyed up to that point, is to question the whole procedure. (laughs) Maybe we've got uh, 2,500 years of deluded people fooling themselves into thinking that there's such a thing as enlightenment. (laughs) Not impossible. Maybe it's true. That's what your mind will. That's what your mind will tell you. You know, and some of you may have even uh, uh, asked yourself that question. It's a legitimate question. It's a fair question. But the problem is, if if the if the doubt becomes strong enough, it will keep you from finding a fair answer. (laughs) <laughs> because if you quit too soon, you'll never know. Okay. So, so that's the hindrance of, of skeptical doubt. Any questions or comments about that? June? Yes? Most of the doubts you mentioned, it seems like uh, these are healthy doubts. You know, finding the right teacher, finding the right meditation center. I've been seeing all this. They are, they are reasonable questions, which is, uh, which is the reason that they have the, the power to capture your mind and, uh, and disrupt your practice. Finding the right teacher is really helpful. Finding the right teacher is very helpful. That's a very important thing to do. Absolutely, yes. But if you find yourself going from one teacher to another to another, uh, chances are you're you're not uh, you're you're overcome by doubt before you have a chance to really determine. Maybe I was extremely unlucky. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. that's possible. But but do you agree that we have a, a different level of teacher? Like a kindergarten need a kindergarten mm-hmm. teacher. Right. Like uh, you know, if you study PhD, you need a PhD mm-hmm. teacher. You know that sort of. That's right. Yes, that's right. There are different levels of, of teachers, and it's really I I think important to. I mean, and there's other factors that enter into it, too. Uh, If there is a teacher that is accessible to you versus one that's on the other side of the world, that's an important criteria, too. So, um, but with any teacher, you need to, you need to come to a point where, you know, you're, you're certain that you have gotten what you can from that teacher and that you would do better to go somewhere else. You know? yes. 
and, uh, and, and I, I, I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm just pointing out to you that, that doubt, when the seeds of doubt are planted in the mind and start to grow, they can put you on a path of going from teacher to teacher and going from method to method in uh, a way that's, that's not healthy and not productive. Because it could be that any one of those teachers could have taught you a lot. And perhaps, yes, you might have come to a time that was appropriate to change teachers, but uh, uh, you might very well have uh, missed out on a lot in the process. So. 也许我没有记住，不一定是啊，不一定是那个维摩吉经，但是就是说，就是说在不知道哪部经典上有说过，就是说佛陀讲法的时候三受哈各自正德，就是说三受就是表示说不同的阶层他都能够。So when Buddha teaches, uh, when Buddha taught, uh, there's a different level got benefit. That's right. People of different levels. Yeah. And uh, and a good teacher can teach people at all different levels, but there are people who are teaching meditation and who are teaching Dharma today in many places of the world whose, you know, whose level of understanding is, um, say, junior high school level of understanding. And so when you've learned what you can from that person, you may well need to go you know, but if you find if you find a teacher who has a high level of teaching, then they should be able to teach anybody uh, at, at any level. I agree with you there. But uh, in terms of you know finding a teacher for yourself, the truth is that there are teachers out there at many different levels, and the first teacher you go to may not necessarily be the best teacher for you. And there's other ways in which they can be not the best teacher too. Other than they may have tremendous knowledge and understanding, but there may be some other way in which they're not suited to you. But the real point is that we have to be on guard against allowing our own doubts and skepticism to excuse me, stand in the way of our making a genuine, diligent effort in the practice.
They've gone from teacher to teacher to teacher, and they'll tell you what's wrong with all of them. And those people, it's not, it's, it's highly unlikely that out of all the teachers in the world, they just happened to choose the 15 teachers that were terrible. That's probably not what happened. <laughs> but I, but I, I, I do want to share this uh, with everybody, is mm-hmm. that uh, from my personal experience, I feel like uh, I got a great benefit from uh, learning Dharma from different levels mm-hmm. uh, of the teacher, different kind of teacher, and all the all the teacher helped me to appreciate a real good teacher. Yes, that's right. Wonderful. Thank you. And and the point of this is that doubt is one of those tricks your mind will play on you to uh, to to keep you from making your best effort. And so always, whenever you experience doubt, don't believe it right out of the out of the door. When doubt comes out, don't grab onto it, don't let it work on your mind, and don't let it stand in the way of your practice. Test it, and prove it, and demonstrate it. Learn what you can from a teacher. It's actually, whether, whether we're talking about the suitability of a method for you, and there's different methods, or the suitability of a teacher for you, it's not until you've really tested and tried it, because you can walk away from from the method that's most perfectly suited to you. The reason it's perfectly suited to you is that it challenges you where you're weakest. And if doubt comes up and you don't make the proper attempt, then you will not have the benefit of the teaching that would have been best for you. And the same thing could be true of the teacher. So whenever doubt comes up, always doubt that doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Test it. And satisfy yourself. Yeah. Uh, doubt that doubt. Yeah. Okay. Test that doubt. Can I also add my opinion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, about the teacher, I'm, I'm thinking, because there are lots of, like you said, uh, meditation center on the street, like uh, I cannot say every single corner, but a lot, you know. A lot, yeah. And uh, I think it depends on different people, it, what they want to achieve. What is their purpose to, mm-hmm. to practice meditation? You know, I have seen lots of people, they got clinically um, improvement. But, you know, they practice, the, the meditation is not really, you know, they want um, from just different angles, you know. Clinical reveal. Uh, so they practice with, you know, different um, um, focus. And some people, they want gain, um, they want to achieve uh, enlightenment. Mm-hmm. So that's that's another purpose. So yes. there are different teachers and teach with you know different um, point of view. Mm-hmm. It depends on what you want to achieve. Okay. That's that's another very good point. Just what is the <coughs> what is the focus of the teacher and what is the intention and what is your intention? Because there, if if the teacher is primarily intended to teach uh, relaxation and stress reduction, and you want to become enlightened. It's definitely not going to work. <laughs> so, or vice versa, too. But you know, in general, in everything in your life, you will find that doubt is one of those things that arises in your mind that can be as, a, as can serve as a hindrance in all kinds of ways. You know, when uh, in a relationship or a marriage, when there's a problem, doubt arises, does it not? So what do you do? As soon as doubt arises, do you immediately throw it up? No, you don't. Same thing in, in, in a career or a job. No one who's ever uh, gone to school in some program that takes two years or four years or six years before you graduate and are able to actually practice in that profession has gone through that whole time without some doubt. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Or maybe this is the wrong school. I should have gone to Harvard after all, or you know, whatever. Or maybe I shouldn't be a dentist. I should be a car mechanic. You know, doubt comes up, and doubt—it's just the the nature of doubt. Doubt undermines your determination. Doubt undermines your commitment. And so you have to be on guard about doubt, and you have to treat 
doubt in a healthy way. Not ignoring it, because uh, the doubt may, uh, may be well-founded, but uh, you have to be on guard against the uh, very unhealthy consequences of doubt. So that's, that's really what I'm saying here. In your meditation practice, so, some things I can assure you, uh, whereas there are different methods and different methods are better suited to some people than others, there are different, uh, as, as you mentioned, there's different purposes and uh, uh, outcomes that certain kind of practices are dedicated to and that there needs to be an alignment there. There are many different teachers and some will be more suited to you than others. But at the two ends of the spectrum of doubt, don't doubt yourself. I don't really think, uh, as far as I'm concerned, anyone can master meditation. Some people, may it may uh, be a little more difficult for others, maybe a little easier for others. But even there, as I explained before, sometimes the person for whom it's easiest in the beginning may encounter greater difficulties further along in the process. But don't doubt yourself. If you find yourself thinking, I can't do this. There's something wrong with me. I have ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. I'll never be able to concentrate. As a matter of fact, concentration meditation has been used very effectively in helping people with clinically diagnosed ADD. (laughs) So, (laughs) if you find yourself thinking, oh, I must have some kind of ADD, I'll never be able to do this. It it really probably isn't true. (laughs) You know, so don't doubt yourself, your ability to do it. And the other uh, end of the spectrum is doubting the value of this at all, doubting the value of meditation and the value of Dharma practice. Um, The reason that we go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha uh, over and over again is to remind ourselves that we go for refuge to the Buddha because the Buddha was a human being, just like us. And he achieved the complete liberation, the awakening, the enlightenment. So it's the enlightenment of the Buddha that we're going to refuge for, too. We go for refuge to the Dhamma because the Buddha had to discover the path on his own. But we have the legacy of his teaching and of all the teachers since that time. So we, we take refuge in the fact that the path that leads to uh, enlightenment has been marked out for us and that we don't have to discover it on our own. Most especially we take refuge in the Sangha. First of all is the Sangha of the Buddha himself. All of the thousands of uh, followers of the Buddha who followed him for 45 years of teaching and who achieved their own liberation. Because we look at that and say, there has to have been some kind of substance to this. It, it, It can't have been... You know, just this charismatic guy that fooled everybody. Went out and said, I'm enlightened and they all believe me. Right? Because they became enlightened themselves. Then there is the Sangha of all of those, all of those practitioners for 2,500 years in all these different traditions who've become stream winners and once-returners and non-returners and arhats. And this too assures us that this this is this path is real. It really works. The goal is attainable, you know. And then, of course, there is the uh, the sangha that is in the world today that supports us in our practice. And so, this too is a very powerful support in terms of doubt. When in, in times of doubt, to uh, take refuge in in the sangha. In whatever form and to whatever degree that we need to. Yeah? But, uh, I, well, I understand that um, not doubting the Buddha's 
Dharma and Sangha and everything, but like I I I had um, but sometimes you have to have the right teacher to guide you not having doubt. Mm. If you have a teacher who tells you inaccurate things or weird things that goes on, then you you're gonna have doubt in the in the in the practice. I, I think that's what I'm saying in this last point is regardless of whether you have a bad experience with a teacher, mm-hmm. take refuge in the enlightenment of the Buddha, in the Dharma as a whole. No one person is the Dharma, and the Dharma has many forms and is present. And take refuge in the Sangha is not one teacher. One teacher does not represent the Sangha. So, so yes, you may have you may have an experience uh, with one teacher or one situation or something like that. And that's that's the whole point. Don't don't doubt the Dharma as a whole because of a single experience. Right? And also, don't rely on something outside of yourself to overcome doubt. What you need to do is to recognize the nature of doubt and take responsibility yourself. Right? Can't put the responsibility for your doubt on anyone or anything else. You have to recognize the danger that it represents, and you have to represent, recognize, of course, the the uh, uh, reality of, of finding a, a suitable teacher and a suitable practice. But but that responsibility is on you, and the only way you can do it is to uh, to make a sincere best effort. When you can say to yourself, "I've made sincere best effort." Uh, of this practice and to the point that it's no longer a doubt in my mind but it's a conviction verified through having done my best then it's time to look for something different okay Quite so the translation. So the antidote to doubt. Uh, in the trad- as it's traditionally stated in terms of the of the uh, jhana factors it said that the uh, factor of sustained attention is the antidote to skeptical doubt and sustained practice doing uh, it's basically uh, when doubt arises continue the practice until the doubt becomes resolved one way or the other, either the, the doubt is is verified as uh, as uh, uh, as sound, or the doubt is uh, dispelled as uh, as being false. So, yes. What about the Tibetan Buddhism practice? The followers need to fully rely on the master. The Guru Yoga practice. Well. That practice comes out of a tradition where uh, a novice monk, who's typically only, you know, four or five, six, seven years old, enters a monastery, and at some point they're assigned a guru by a person, uh, by by the abbot of the monastery, 
whose uh, whose own teacher and other teachers and the entire established monastic establishment has uh, deemed them appropriate for that position through their through their wisdom and their behavior over a long period of time. So you have a very responsible and presumably very wise person who has selected out of all of the teachers who are part of the population of that monastery and said that uh, this person is going to be your guru. And in the practice... So so in that case, uh, there's a pretty... a pretty good chance that there's not really going to be a a tremendous incompatibility between the student and the guru. Or at least that the guru is not going to be some uh, deluded and incompetent and and improperly trained person. So, and, and this is very important in practicing guru yoga. On the other hand, contrast that if you take somebody in an American city who decides that they want to take up the practice of Vajrayana and they look up in the yellow pages under Guru. (laughs) (laughs) That's too dangerous. That's an exaggeration. But in the United States, if you wanted to find a Guru, you're going to look and you're going to see there's these different Vajrayana centers with these different people. And there is no... There is no... Abbot with experience and authority, and you really have no idea of these possible gurus, what their qualifications are, you know, or anything else. So you're taking a big chance. Whereas in the tra- traditional practice of guru yoga, uh, you you could start off with a certain amount of confidence that yes, you can condition yourself to see this particular teacher as the uh, embodiment of wisdom, as that uh, as an incarnation of the Buddha and treat them and regard everything they do and say in that way because somebody else has has made certain that you are doing this practice with regard to somebody who is qualified. Unfortunately, outside of the modern monastic system of Tibet, it's a much more risky business. Okay. I, so. I have a question. Don't we all have to learn the wisdom from Buddha himself? Because in the Susha, it's very clear that Buddha himself encouraged the doubt. That yes. he encouraged his students to challenge him. He said that, don't believe because I say so. That's right. He said, don't accept anything on the base of, basis of uh, authority. Or because everyone else agrees that it's true. Or because the teacher is popular. Uh, and also, when uh, before he died, when he's asked who is going to lead the sangha, he said, he uh, he, he said, you, basically, you don't need a leader. That I have given you the whole teaching with an open hand. So teach each other. But the question about guru yoga, this is a particular kind of practice that was adapted to Buddhism. Um, at least a thousand years later from, uh, from uh, uh, northern Indian uh, practice. And uh, it, has, it has its own value and, and validity and has worked well within the Tibetan Vajrayana system. But it definitely, it's, it's, not, it's not a practice that comes from the Buddha or the time of the Buddha. It's a much later development. And it's a very risky one. Yeah. Now, even the Tibetans will tell you the best guru lives at least one valley over. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so there seems to be uh, good reasons and bad reasons for doubt in, in this particular case where you're focusing on the bad reason for doubt, and mm-hmm. the bad reason is um, is we really haven't investigated uh, things thoroughly before mm-hmm. we come to the conclusion of of being doubtful. That's right. Yes. And and, and also saying, uh, I mean, 
Yes, of course, don't believe it just because I say it. But my advice to you is never doubt yourself and your ability and never doubt the Dhamma. And at the same time, I, I think we also shouldn't doubt other people too because, uh, because the nature of other people um, is really the same as ours. If, if we have the ability to do something, then other people will you know, surely have the ability to do something too. That's absolutely true, yes. Right. Don't doubt other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's probably very few people that you can't learn something from. You can learn something from everyone, so... Yes. Especially, can be another way that when, whenever the, the draw arises, actually this indicates something we need to overcome. Yes. Yeah. So, yes, that's very well put, yeah. yeah. Thank you. All right, well, let's move on. Let's look at the next hindrance. Um, Actually, uh, well, the next hindrance is worldly desire, sense desire. And this is a cause of a lot of our distraction in meditation. Major one. Major one, yes. So what we're referring to here, um, of course, often this hindrance is translated in, uh, into English as sense desire, which is fairly close to its meaning uh, in, in uh, Pali. But in, uh, in the Buddhist description of the universe, we speak of the sense realm. We live in the sense realm. Okay? So, the sense desire spoken of as a hindrance is it's not referring to uh, just the desire for sensual pleasure like good food, uh, good sex, or, or things like that. It's referring to all of the desires that belong to this realm, the sense realm. And so that's why I like to speak of it as worldly desire. Okay? Um, do you, uh, are, are you familiar with what's called the eight worldly dharmas? No? What do you mean? Well, the eight, I'll, I'll tell you what, what they are. The eight worldly dharmas are uh, pleasure and pain and loss and gain. They are fame and infamy or disrepute, and then they are praise and blame. So those are the eight. Okay? Our desires to do with this world, uh, of course, we want, we want pleasure and we want to avoid pain. And many of the distractions that come up in meditation have to do with pleasure and pain, right? Everything from moving around to get more comfortable or... (laughs) 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 The temperature in the meditation hall or things like that. But also having thoughts about things in your life that are causes of of pleasure and pain, happiness and unhappiness. Uh, many of the thoughts that come up in your meditation are directly to do with, with that. Either the past or the future, things that you're concerned about in that way. Um, then there, there is uh, loss and gain as well. The same thing. Um, a lot of the distractions that come up in your meditation are thoughts about your fear of losing something or your uh, desire to gain something. When you are, when you find yourself in meditation, thinking about some important project that you have going on in your life, what's that an example of? That project is, you know, it, it it's going to, uh, it may involve some uh, personal gain in some way, or it may be uh, one that you see as 
producing for you some kind of pleasure and satisfaction. Or, or it could be the other way. It could be some kind of project that's going to prevent some problem that would cause you pain or loss in the future. But you see, when, when, when you have uh, these kinds of ideas and projects and thoughts coming up in your mind, they're arising out of worldly desire. Likewise, fame and uh, disrepute or disrespect. Fame, uh, fame also brings with it power. And power is very important in this world, and to many people, it's, a, it's an important concern in their life. And they'll find themselves thinking about things in meditation that have to do with the, the whatever degree of fame and power that they do enjoy, or that they might lose, or that they might gain. And so, this too is an example of the hindrance of worldly desire and operation. And then, finally, the same thing with praise and blame. If you've been praised for something, you may find yourself reflecting on that in your meditation instead of developing concentration. Or if you've been blamed for something, you may find yourself fretting about that. So, so this, is, this is worldly desire. And to whatever strength that worldly desire is present in our mind stream, our meditation is going to be under attack by all of the thoughts and concerns that we have related to worldly desire. And so you'll recognize you've had a lot of those thoughts, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Actually, some of the other hindrances are also sources. Uh, the other, uh, this was the third hindrance that, in the order that I'm going through them, sense desire. Uh, ill will and uh, uh, worry and remorse are also causes of thoughts that produce distraction in meditation. Some of the thoughts you have, if you've had, uh, a, if, 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 well, we had an example the other day. Something happens that produces annoyance, and you know, and the thought keeps coming back, you know. And no matter how many times you dismiss it, it keeps coming back. Or if you've had, uh, if you're angry at somebody, you've had an argument with someone, uh, you find yourself remembering some the conversation, the argument, you know, and, and having thoughts of, well, I should have said this, or they shouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah. So ill will is another ill and and the ill will it's a general term but you know in, in the uh, uh, hindrance of ill will we need to include all kinds of negative thinking judge being judgmental being critical uh, these are also examples of negative thinking and not just directed towards other people too we can have ill will towards ourselves we can be angry at ourselves we can judge ourselves we can be critical of ourselves and our practice and so this hindrance is a source of all kinds of thoughts that can intrude and uh, disrupt our meditation practice. Worry and remorse. You know, we worry about things that might happen, uh, and we have remorse for things we've done. And uh, same thing. So, so even from the beginning of our practice, you you'll see that you know all kinds of thoughts that are arising out of these three hindrances here. As you go along uh, in the process, they, they take different roles and they emerge in different ways as you proceed. It is said that uh, single-pointedness, the concentration we develop, is opposed to worldly desire. And, of course, I mean, obviously here you are trying to uh, develop a, a focus on a meditation object and thoughts of worldly desire are coming up and taking your attention away. And they're opposed to in such a way that the more you succeed in uh, becoming focused and developing concentration, the less power that worldly desire has, it becomes weakened. Um, 
as your concentration improves, when you reach the stage where you actually have uh, uh, a significant degree of single-pointedness, which is the seventh stage and the ten stages, you will find that you're far less... Not only when you meditate are you not beset by thoughts to do with worldly desire, but when you're out there in the world, your mind is not controlled by these desires to the same degree. The only way that you can sit in meditation uh, and enjoy a period of relatively single-pointed concentration is to have a calmness of mind. And that calmness of mind, once established, it carries over and it resists the, uh, the domination of your consciousness by desire for this and desire for that and concern about uh, fame and fortune and, and everything else. So they work in opposition to each other. In the progression of this, when, when you reach the stage of uh, samatha, well, in the eighth, ninth, and tenth stages, you find that this hindrance is so suppressed that uh, uh, there is a dramatic change in the way that you're affected by the affairs of the world and your concerns about them. They have really, they've really lost their power over you. They're only temporarily suppressed. If you stop meditating and your mind loses this calm and tranquility that you've developed, then uh, craving uh, for all of these things will reassert itself and the, the desire come back. But the wonderful thing about it is through the suppression of the hindrances by the development of concentration, it becomes possible for you to practice the mindful awareness and to, to reach the stage in the practice where rather than being suppressed, these hindrances are uprooted and completely overcome once and for all. And that's, that's what you're going for. But the development of concentration and the enjoyment of long periods of concentrated mental stability, tranquility, and calm will put you in a state that in, in your life you're, you're no longer so uh, obsessed with and controlled by and driven by all of these worldly desires. Any questions about that or comment? Yeah. Why the, uh, the sleeping is one of the five desires? What's that? Sleeping. Sleep. Sleep. Oh, sleep. One of the five desires. I didn't realize it's so important. Compared to the, the first four, which is uh, fortune, the sex, and the fame, uh, the food. I think uh, the sleeping is uh, a natural thing. You need to sleep. Yes, we natu- naturally need sleep. That's that's true. I, um, I I'm sorry, I don't quite understand what you're. I think in, at least in the, the Chinese text I encountered, mm-hmm. they describe the five uh, uh, what desires. I see. Yes. So they include. Yeah, the they include in addition to the four uh, of, of pleasure and gain and fame and. Uh, uh, praise, they also include sleep. Yeah. Well, there's a many Chinese translation. Mm-hmm. Um, ah. that, uh, he said that uh, it's a, one set of the translation, but we, we do have a, yeah. Yeah, that's, another that's a one set of explanation. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, I can see that, you know, that's, that, that's not an unreasonable thing to include in the list. There are, there are some people that would rather sleep than meditate. It's easy to fall asleep when I do meditation. So how many hours do we really need to sleep? Can you tell us? I mean, from your observation and your experience. Uh, it, it's different uh, for different people and their state of health, and also depends on you know the the kinds of activities that you're engaged in. Um, when I've been on long meditation retreats, you know, four hours sleep is 
a lot of sleep, you know. But when uh, I my body needs to heal, uh, eight hours sleep or nine hours sleep can just barely be enough. So, uh, you know, it, it's not always going to be the same. I see. Right? But I think maybe what this is addressing is that we easily have a tendency to want to spend more time sleeping than we actually need. To indulge in it as a kind of sense pleasure because, uh, you know, it is, it's an escape from the pain of the world and it's, uh, it's also a, a, a kind of pleasure in its own right. And the Buddha did, if you look in the sutras, the Buddha did uh, always uh, you know, ad- admonish the, uh, the bhikkhus that they, they sleep no more than was necessary for the health of their body and mind and cautioned against indulging in sleep. And so uh, it quite properly does belong in a list of those things that you need to, to that you, you may end up desiring to the point that uh, they become obstacles. Yeah. How can we find out we are indulging ourselves in sleeping? Uh, how can we differentiate need and indulge? Because I know a friend, she can sleep 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Then sometimes I try to tell her that uh, you don't need to sleep for mm-hmm. 10 hours. So can you tell us how to differentiate indulging and need? <laughs> Uh, well, if, if you, I, I suppose one way would be that uh, if you tried sleeping less and found that, that uh, you were quite capable of functioning, then obviously you didn't need that, that, that extra was an indulgence. So yeah, that would be one not, way. Yeah, it's not only the hour, but also the quality of the, the sleeping. Mm-hmm. Some people, they... Mm-hmm. They, they oh, are really sleepy. sad to sleep, you know, even they stay there in an hour, maybe they wake up and then fall asleep, oh, you know, it, it, it depends on the, the next the day. Quality. Right. The quality. Yeah. Sleep, is, uh, sleep is, a necess- is a necessity. And uh, so when you have enough that it meets the needs of the body and mind, I think that's the important thing to go by. It's, it's easier to determine what's enough <laughs> than it is to decide you know what? It, what is an indulgence? So, if it's if, if somebody sleeps more than they need to, then that is an indulgence. So we just need to determine what's necessary. And uh, it, sleep is important. There's no question about it. And uh, I would disagree with somebody who said, "Well, arbitrarily, well, nobody should sleep more than six hours a day." You know, because uh, that's not necessarily true. It may be more than some people need and less than others. Mm-hmm. So I won't try to give you a number, but I think every person uh, can establish for themselves what, you know, what they need, what, what, is, what conduces to them being healthy in their life and, and able to practice effectively, and that's the thing to go by. Right. So. Thank you. Yes? I'm just wondering, like, um, when I, I just know that, like, for me, it's really hard to, like, we reach, like, a seventh or eighth or ninth stage or tenth stage. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like, can you go off on a retreat somewhere and maintain that state? Or because it's so hard to maintain that state when you're in your daily life. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, well, in a retreat situation, you're going to be able to achieve uh, much deeper and and much more consistent concentration and mindfulness than you can in your daily life. So uh, you have to, at, at the end of the retreat, you want to try to sustain as much as you can of what you've gained during the retreat. Try to, and, and, and if you can, even build upon that. But what you have to expect, depending once again on your individual circumstances, or what you're going to have to expect is when you go from a situation of um, where you're meditating many hours a day without any distraction or disturbance to where you've got 
family situations and problems and work situations and problems and traffic and everything else, there's going to be way more distraction. You're not going to be able to maintain the same yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, so. you have to work, go to school. Work, go to school, whatever. Or just simply the fact that you, the, the decrease in the number of hours of practice. Yeah. So all these things have an effect. Anyway, uh, oh yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Um, uh, I have a question uh, about the experience on that. I forgot to ask you during the interview. Uh, Is uh, it to to do with directly related to what we're talking about? Now? Um, it's 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 related to what we're talking about. It's uh, well, it's not exclusively related to what we're talking about. <laughs> Well, let me just finish up one last thought sure. I had, and then we'll do your question. Sure. Because it'll take a couple of minutes for once you get started. Sure. So, okay. Um, what you'll notice in in your meditation, in terms of the kinds of thoughts and distractions that arise, is that when you first uh, begin to meditate, or you may have been meditating a long time, but you come into retreat, or or you're Basically, you're in the in the earlier of these stages. The nature of the thoughts you have will be very mundane. They'll be very ordinary. They'll be very everyday, worldly thoughts. They'll be thoughts about the projects that you're working on and the conversations that you've had and meals and whether your car needs to be fixed or not. They'll and they will be really very much in this particular realm of worldly desires that we've talked about. And as your practice progresses and as your concentration increases, you will find that you'll have fewer and fewer distractions that are of this sort of ordinary, everyday, work and family life kind of nature. But you'll have a different kind of thought emerge that... uh, You'll continue to have thoughts arising that serve as distractions, but they'll be coming from a deeper level of your psyche. Uh, instead of so many thoughts about what's happening, you know, last week and next week and yesterday and today, you'll have you'll have thoughts about things that happened many years ago. Uh, you'll have uh, unresolved uh, personal traumas that will rise again in your awareness and, and things like that. So so this particular hindrance, a sense desire, is the one that is going to, or our worldly desires, is going to serve as a source for the vast majority of your distracting thoughts in the earlier stages of concentration development, and it will become progressively less and less as you go along here. And the thing that you'll see in your daily life corresponding with that is that you react less strongly to all of these kinds of things as well. So that's what I wanted to point out to you. That was the thought I wanted to. So you, your your question here is. Uh, uh, oh, I, should should I ask you in private afterwards, or should I, can I ask you right now? Um, it's 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 uh it's a. It's kind of strange that sometimes I look at like my own hand, and it scares me because I, it, it looks like a stranger, <laughs> the stranger's hand, and then and then it's I don't know why 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 that is. <laughs> I always see myself like wow, there's a stranger here. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I don't think so. I don't know what the heck is going on. If you have your faces in the mirror for a long time, you will find more wheels. Oh, yes. So we all share the same experience. (laughs) That's just an interesting experience. When it happens, I I just notice it, explore it, and, uh, you know, but... uh, It, you know, uh, one of the things that you might reflect on is, is the way that your your mind identifies with your body and distinguishes it from 
what is not you, what it sees as, as, as not being you. And what's happened when you look at your own hand and it's like something foreign, something... Yeah, it scares me actually. I was like, what the heck is that doing? (laughs) (laughs) See, he's very happy. No, I'm not very happy. So see, that's just a a direct experience of the emptiness of your normal perception of this as being yours and familiar and belonging to you. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) That 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 whole sense that you normally have is just a mental construct. It's just a you know, and and one day by accident it's not there, and it's like oh well. Okay, so I think it's time to have lunch and thank you all very much. Have a good afternoon of practice.